the incomparable. Number 143, June 2013. Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. And we are here tonight to talk about J.J. Uh, Abrams' uh, revisiting, rebooting of Star Trek. Uh, most specifically, the new film, Star Trek Into Darkness. But I think we could also talk in general about uh, the the previous movie, too, because that predates this podcast, which is, uh, the 2009 edition of Star Trek. Uh, joining me to discuss the uh, the new Star Trek movies are uh, a, a fine collection of, of folks. Uh, Dan Morin is here as always. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. It's a pleasure to have beamed in for this occasion. Thank you. You're more of a Deep Space Nine guy, but it's nice of you to, to, to take I, it uh, back to the I've original. Seen, uh, I've seen a little bit of everything. All right. Fair enough. Uh, you you know him as a, a big Star Wars fan like Dan, but he's on this podcast. It's John Syracuse. Hi, John. Yeah, I missed the uh, the Wrath of Khan episode, which was the one, uh, you know, classic Star Trek movie that I would possibly want to be on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Voyage Home. But these will have to do. <laughs> um, yeah, we haven't done that one yet. Yeah. So, so here I am. Also here, my, uh, my uh, go-to Star Trek expert, Scott McNulty. Hi, Scott. Hello, uh, I'm excited to talk about Star Trek Four. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, uh, David Lore is here. Hi, David. Hello. I guess uh, why don't we start by by going back to 2009 and talking about the original J.J. Uh, Abrams re- reboot movie uh, a little bit. Um, you know, I liked it. I saw it twice in the theater. I have the DVD or the Blu-ray. I've watched it a bunch of times. Um, you know, it's certainly not without its flaws, but. Uh, you know, what I really liked about it was going back to the original, which is obviously it's one of the most influential, you know, TV shows of my life. I can't remember not watching the original Star Trek. I've seen those episodes as detailed in a couple of previous episodes of The Incomparable so many times. Um, and I thought they did a really good job of, of taking this, th- those classic characters and this franchise that was kind of on its last legs and, and revitalizing it, making it a, a modern, enjoyable uh, film that that you know audiences really liked and and I enjoyed it a lot even though it does have some some things that bug me about it in on balance I I I really love it I'm just kind of interested before we get started on the new movie to go around and 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 get your guys's take on on that the cliff notes as if there were and remember back to episode minus sixty of the incomparable when we talked about it in two thousand nine um, I remember it like this no there's no flashback we weren't on the air then <laughs> so uh so we'll start with scott since he's the resident star trek expert um you know give a little overview of your thoughts of uh, of the 2009 movie well i i went to it much like i imagine uh dan and john went into uh the phantom menace uh except when i left my soul was not crushed <laughs> Wow, I, I was I was happy. Just turn that, that knife a little bit more, Scott. I'm sorry, because you have no soul. <laughs> it's true. I had it removed before I went to see the movie. Uh, I was quite happy that the the reboot I thought was faithful, at least in tone, to uh, Star Trek. I mean, I have. I, I wonder if they really had to blow up Vulcan, but uh, other than that, uh, does anybody really have to do anything? Well, that's true. And the whole coincidence of you know Spock is just hanging out. In an ice in cave, cave, and Kirk just happens to land on that planet, and they happen to run into each other, and then they happen to see Vulcan get destroyed. Uh, it's kind of stretching it. But overall, thumbs up. Fair enough. John? 
Yeah, I didn't. I, I have a false memory of us doing a podcast about the original <laughs> Star Trek. You'd think we would have. Yeah, because yeah, and I was I was about to say. Remember when we when we talked about that? Like when I first watched the movie, I must have talked with some of you guys about it in person. Uh, I, I remember complaining about like the the silly scenes where Kirk's running around with his hand all puffy and some of the weird tonal, <laughs> tonal shifts in the middle and like. I had complaints and I was like, it was good. I liked it. But, you know, boy, I wish they hadn't done Like After I saw it in the theater, I'm like, that was fun. But like the bad part sort of stuck in my craw. Um, and I recently rewatched it with my son, which will be a theme later when we talk about uh, this movie. And I liked it way more on, on, you know, I guess this was probably my third viewing because I think I saw it at some other point. I liked it way more seeing it, you know, recently, many years after its hmm. release, because I was able to like the, the, the uh, Silly parts and the annoying parts didn't bother me as much, and I was just able to appreciate the things I really did like about it—the big dramatic beginning, the the silly over-the-top introduction of Child Kirk. Like some of it, just like went around the bend, you know, that slingshotted around the sun, so to speak. Sure, and and managed to come out the other side, and I was just able to enjoy it as good, goofy fun, and enjoy the space battle things, and just like. Maybe it's because I, like I I watched it again leading up to knowing I was going to see the new one because I just wanted to get back into that mindset and seeing the J.J. Abrams style Star Trek lens flares and all like there is a particular visual and kinetic style to the way he's chosen to do Star Trek that I think is different than at least the other property J.J. Abrams properties that I've seen from him. I was on board with that and watching it again, I liked it more and I was excited to see the next movie. All right, which you did. But we'll get to that. Uh, David, what about you? Well, you know, I saw it. You know, well, I, I saw all the spoilers for it beforehand, even though it hadn't come out. You know, they're saying, oh, oh it's going to be. Well, I mean, you know, Spock is going to be back and uh, it's going to be a diverging timeline. And then they delayed the movie for a couple of months. So right. I had all that time to be sitting there going, divergent timeline? Good God, no. And I got all that anger out. Is nothing sacred? Exactly. Is the continuity <laughs> built up like little layers of a coral reef over 40 years that doesn't really interest anybody but fills lots of reference material sacred? Exactly. I may be tipping yeah. my hand here a little bit. Okay, go ahead. It, it is sacred. It Well, yeah. um, yes. So it's I, still so there. I, sort of, I, I expiated all of that before I went to see the movie. And so as soon as it came out, it was, you know, the midnight sneak preview. I'm like, all right, I'm there. And... I didn't mind and it kept going and I still didn't mind. And by the end of the movie, yeah, I had, I had issues with it, but I just, I enjoyed the cast and the chemistry so much. And as soon as the orchestral version, you know, the full orchestra playing the classic theme and the planets zooming up at you, I had the biggest stupid smile on my face and I think I had it all the way home. And I got home and my wife looked at me and said, Good? I said, well, um, yeah. Yeah. That that was the best magic trick of that movie, that theme at the end, because oh, they yeah. held it the whole thing and they just put it at the end and like it's cheating, it's cheating. They're sending you out on <laughs> like, you know, they withheld it the whole movie and they send you out on that note. And how can you not go out of the theater smiling at that point? Oh yeah. Can yeah. you believe that in the entire history of the Star Trek movie franchise, they never played the freaking theme song? In mm -hmm. fact, that's true. Yes, the Star Trek, the motion picture, they use the theme song that would eventually become the next generation theme yeah. song. No, they, they would do the do, 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 but they never actually like played the original oh, Star Trek. Oh, 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 oh. Exactly. They never yeah. did it. 
Yeah. And, and 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 that was that moment in that movie where I was like, oh my god, I've just enjoyed this entire movie, and now <laughs> and now this. Yeah. What more could you ask for? You know, because I was going to say about the continuity, it's not as if like a man comes to your house when you see the new Star Trek and takes your DVDs of the old Star Trek and breaks them wait, and sets wait. your books on fire. <laughs> a, a man came to my house and did that. <laughs> but it wasn't connected. Oh, no. And that was me. Damn you, Snell. Snell. Simon Pegg did come to my house and burn all my Star Wars stuff after Phantom, Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> Can you blame him? Reference acknowledged. <laughs> My main problem with the the Star Trek 2009 was that the villain was not all that interesting to me. Oh, yeah. Yes. His, he had a cool yes. ship, but he was just a pissed off miner. And I was like, eh, yeah. who cares? And and it didn't, you know, where was he for all of the years between baby Jim Kirk and grown up Jim Kirk? He was biting He's off doing stuff. He was in a Klingon <laughs> prison, but they, that was really boring. So they just cut that scene out and it's on the DVD. <laughs> but you're right. In fact, that whole, the whole... As as clever as the divergent timeline is, and as wonderful as an opening scene, as the opening scene with the Kelvin with mm-hmm, Kirk, mm-hmm. Kirk's father sacrificing himself, uh, and all of that is so great. And yet, the mechanics of Nero and the, I actually think the worst single thing in that entire movie is the when Spock does his lengthy monologue that doesn't make any sense. Yes. Where he says, oh, there was a black hole, and I had the red matter, <laughs> red and matter, there was a then... no a star that threatened the galaxy, which doesn't make any sense. And and it's just like, we just needed this to happen. <laughs> and I, I read it on the commentary track on the Blu-ray. Um, they actually say that originally Leonard Nimoy's uh, voiceover was clear, and they made it all weird and distorted. So it's like, don't pay attention to what he's saying. It's just, but whatever, blah. <laughs> And it's and it's the weakest thing in the movie is actually this kind of like the villain and the and the mechanism of the plot. It's well, speaking of the last Doctor Who episode and, and <laughs> Clara Clara as a plot device instead of a character. Like I, that's you know you you're naming all the things that I didn't like about yeah. the first movie and starting to make me not like it again because we're dwelling on them <laughs> instead of the good parts. But uh, I I if I you if you much. are. If you were a big Star Trek fan, this thing that they did with the thing going back in time and creating a divergent timeline is perhaps the most respectful possible way you can reboot a franchise because oh, you yeah. are you are saying we are not going to touch like what really quote unquote really right. happened. Like that will always be there. We're not pretending it didn't happen and just telling the same. It's not even really a reboot. It's a mere continuation. Yeah. And and in that respect, Nero is a plot device whose purpose is to allow us to have a new franchise. To yes, to make this movie. Completely unencumbered by continuity. Or lar- largely. Lar- from the point of the divergence. But, but no, from, that's from exactly the rational it. point of view, the, the, yeah, you are, like, they're, they're, they are making themselves more encumbered than they have to be because they want to do the homages and all the ridiculous things. When in reality, it would have diverged so much that nothing resembling any of the other movies would ever happen, except maybe the whale thing, because it's still on its way, right? But, <laughs> but it, I thought that was such, like, that was one of the things that, you know, the theme song at the end is like, and I realized... And guess what? They can do anything they want from here. And it shouldn't piss anyone off because they are leaving intact the real, you know, Star Trek timeline. But now they're free to do whatever they want. And so that's that's one of the reasons I was so excited about the second movie. Well, I, I have a bunch of arguments with people on Twitter about the, about the Star <laughs> Trek Into Darkness. You may have noticed. And um, one of the ones that I got a lot was, well, they shouldn't have changed continuity. It should have just been, you know, within, painting within the numbers, within the little lines of existing established continuity. It's like, wow, there's no drama. I've seen prequels and not just Star Wars. I mean, there's no drama in the 
leading up to the obvious and mandatory eventuality. I, I just think it's it's it would be boring in the extreme to do that. And and so, you know, there are moments in Star Trek Into Darkness where I actually am thinking, wow, are they going to kill some of the main characters? Not that one. I knew they weren't going to kill that one. And we'll get to that. But um, but, the, you know, there were moments where I actually felt like Jeopardy for the characters. And of course, if it was just a straight on prequel, I would never have felt that. Dan, did I, I didn't get to you, did I? I think the first thing that struck me watching the movie was I, I don't believe there is a Oscar for casting. But if there were, <laughs> I think this movie should win every year. Um, I think they did they did one of the best casting jobs I think I could ever like they they managed to perfectly nail all of these characters so that they were familiar yet not dis- like distinctly different at the same time um and to me that was that was quite the coup um because I remember reading the cast list when it came out and you were like reading like okay oh Zachary Quinto is playing Spock well that's yeah I can kind of see that and and Simon Pegg's playing Scotty well that's awesome and, and John Cho's playing Sulu? Well, that's a great choice, you know, and you keep kind of going and going. There were a couple people I were I was unsure of the first time around, but Carl Urban really, really won me over. I think I was saying oh, yeah. that to, oh, to, yeah. to John earlier tonight, actually, that that uh, I, I will now watch pretty much anything with him in it because there's just a couple scenes where he just totally nails it. Which cause um, it's good because he's doing his American accent in that show where he has an, he's a cop with an, a robot partner. Oh, I'm going to watch that now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll watch Bones McCoy as a cop. I think maybe Bones is, is, is the best... Uh, casting of them all which is saying something because I, I i agree with you i think they did a they did a good job and uh, i remember reading something during the production of that first movie that um they were approaching it they said look because this was controversial it's like other actors playing these parts and they said look these are classic roles these are classic characters uh you know different productions of shakespeare have different actors and have had that for hundreds of years it's like isn't the character of captain kirk something so so great and isn't the kirk spock mccoy relationship so interesting that it deserves to be explored further and not just by the original actors so we've had six guys play uh james bond right like you know which is also an iconic character so i don't see really a problem with that um the other thing which is kind of john touched on was this the diverging timelines as a way to keep the original canon intact which the more i I think about the more i find brilliant because uh, the problem to a certain extent whilst a lot of the earlier star trek movies hang you know hold up all right I think the problem to a certain extent is they don't really play to the modern movie goings in the same way that oh, yeah. they didn't they didn't like it's like James Bond right like James Bond has to get reinvented for every era because you know Roger Moore isn't going to fly in the 2000s besides the fact that he's like 90 um but it's like the, there's a different tone right like there's a different there's a different style of filmmaking at the time um and it's and that's the thing that Star Wars fans us Star Wars fans like to complain so much about with the special editions is like well it's like you're trying to take a 70s movie and make it into a 90s movie and that feels really weird um, and so they they were able to diverge the timelines and, and, you know, create this separate thing that is very much of its era. It's very much a movie of its of its time uh, and yet has a lot of, you know, the the same elements that we really like, because, like, you know, you look back at like the bridge from the Enterprise in the original series and it's like you couldn't have like the blinking lights today. Right. Like it wouldn't work. <laughs> it would look silly. It would look All dumb. Switches. Sure. Switches are great, yeah. though. Switches are awesome. I mean, the scene I, I will always say the scene that, that got me in the first trailer, um, the scene that I loved so much was the scene. It's just the one shot of the Sulu like moving the lever to make the, the Enterprise go to warp. I just I love it. It's like this chrome lever. It looks like a hot rod. 
Do you remember when I put that screenshot on my Mac OS X review? Yes, it yes, was, because I was, well, doing, I, I was doing I, the QuickTime player and like, yes, that, that one image jumped out at me as well, so much so that I very intentionally chose it, you know, because you have to show something playing in the movie thing, that exact scene. And to speak to it, I think that, you know, I will say that, that this the Star Trek is the best Star Wars movie we've had in the last, like, 15 years. <laughs> um, well, it is, I mean, like, and that you've seen, you've no doubt... If people haven't seen these the shot, you know, side by side shots of like Star Wars and Star Trek, um, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty like there's a there's a YouTube video where they compare like you know Kirk going out on his little like speeder bike out to the Enterprise and like looking up at the Enterprise to Luke going and looking at the sunset. They, they call that the Luke Skywalker shot, right? J. J. And J.J. Abrams, Abrams is a that. huge Star Wars fan and was not necessarily a really big Star Trek fan before getting into this. So I think to me, you know. It felt like it incorporated a lot of the things that I liked about Star Wars. And there is that element of, and we'll get into this a little bit more with Into Darkness, but the element of even if it's a totally different timeline, there are still, uh, dare I say it, fixed points. Um, or Well, there are, there are elements in it. I like the idea of there are elements like there's inescapable things like Kirk and you know, certain villains are going to meet up no matter what timeline it is. Clearly, even the first, even the first, I mean, the first movie makes it clear. It's like, it, it, it never says it, but it's very clear that there has to be some, the universe is wanting to get these people together. That's why I can forgive Mr. Spock being down, or old Spock being down on the, the ice planet at when Kirk gets sent down there and that Scotty happens to be at the outpost there. It's because... You know the the timeline diverged, but the universe is gonna get these people back together. Right, right. and I think that makes a, emotional sense, but not rational sense. It's like a Stephen King book where there's always yeah. some unseen force causing the story to conform to the shape that makes for a dramatic story. And yeah. I think that that works from a sense of it bothered me. I like you know I, I had that you know sort of quibble the first time around, and I think it was because I was very much holding on to this old like going into it expecting it to be much more like the Star Trek I'd grown up with, which is all very rational and science fiction-y and this was a little bit more fantastic and so i i mean once i sort of separated the element the part of me that was like oh it doesn't really feel like star trek from the part of me that's like yeah but i kind of like that as a story then i think i came around on it when when i was uh, when i showed it to my son he you know he's picking out the different plot points and saying oh well this is cool and this you know and he liked that the timeline diverging worked and uh, was amazed by that and when we got to that point, you know, well, how, you know, it's, well, Scotty's there and old Spock is there. And and why is he there? And does it make any sense? And he said, well, yeah, because Spock sent him to the planet. And I went, oh, even though it's not the same Spock, obviously. Yeah. But to him, it made enough sense that there was like this residual idea for Spock to do that. Spockishness. Spockiness. Otherwise, it's like, why would you do that in the first place? Eh, okay. Right, because it, because it had to be done. Exactly. There's the old sci-fi trope of uh, planets in science fiction movies are about the size of a living room. Yes. Because yeah. no matter where you send someone <laughs> down on a planet, he is inevitably within walking distance of the most important thing or person on the entire planet. So yes. that's just that's just a standard sci-fi trope. Because planets are actually really big, and in reality, you would spend seven years getting to the point that you didn't. And there aren't that many around any given star, and they're not very close together, and yet... There are several moments in this in, in the original uh, Abrams Star Trek and in many other sci-fi movies where it's like planets, tons of them. They're all very close to each other and they're very small. And it's just like, <laughs> no, that's not it. I, I I also had to deal with the like the 
quote unquote rule breaking. And if I were wearing, if I actually wore glasses, I would be pushing them up on my nose right now <laughs> to say like, um, the transporter doesn't actually work well at warp and you can't send people over those long distances <laughs> from the, the years and years I spent reading Star Trek technical manuals. But again, <laughs> yeah, I just was they, like, you know what? I'm gonna, I, it's fine. Well, just, it's there for a plot device. They Let it go. It. They had an in-story explanation for that, though. It was like, yeah. oh, well, this is, you know, the warp the equations future. of the blah, 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 blah. Right, right. Blah. It and just bothered me at the time. As, uh, yeah, as a plot device, it's also just like, yeah, the transfers can do pretty much anything we want them to. But then you look back at the old series and you're like, yeah, you could, like, make separate people, cure diseases. Like, there's all sorts of things you can do with transporters. Make evil blankets. Yes. Make evil curses. Who's to say you won't invent transparent aluminum? That's right. <laughs> All right. Know, he, what if that was the guy who made it? Except, except the difference is that Scotty's smart enough to immediately say, "Excuse me, are you from the future?" <laughs> just immediately, <laughs> like yeah. As the you know, okay, Eric Bana is not very interesting, by the way. He's just he is. Fire everything! I just yeah. like that line because <laughs> you can see spit flying out of his mouth when he does it. It's great. Yeah, and that's that's a ship with no handrails. No guardrails. It's true. It is very unsafe. Excellent balance they have. Bad industrial design. It, it doesn't even seem to have like a complete floor anywhere. No. <laughs> That's, Romulan miners don't like It's floors. there for rocks. They like to <laughs> jump around. They do. Yell. They do calisthenics and stuff. And they stab you with a little pokey stabby thing. If you at, least make the, at least they weren't Remans. Can I just throw one? I like uh, the industrial design of the film is also really, really great. I mentioned the lever on the Enterprise before, but I also I love the phasers. I love oh, yeah, that they I mean, have the little thing that flips from like stun to kill. To kill, yeah, oh, that's awesome. It's just it's not one of those touches that like it it would not have looked out of place in the '60s series, and right. yet it's still modern. And to me, that is awesome. That's just brilliant design. Yeah, well, even the Enterprise is recognizably the Enterprise, but a you know has a modern take on it that makes it again and, and the bridge the same way. I mean, the bridge is is more or less functional in the way that the original Star Trek bridge is, but it doesn't look like it at all. It's all Apple store, you know, it's glass and white and and, (laughs) yeah. All right. Uh, Star Trek into darkness just came out and we all saw it. And, um, I, I, uh, I'll put it out there. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very entertaining. Again, it doesn't, it's not without its flaws, but you know, I actually think that it has fewer flaws than the 2009 movie, um, starting with a much better villain, <laughs> much more interesting actor uh, doing much more interesting things than than Eric Bana, sadly. I mean, he's not a terrible actor or anything, but he's not given it much to do and he doesn't do anything with it. So, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and John Harrison. A.K.A. the Mandarin. What? <laughs> also known as Khan. Khan! What? I did not pick up on that. No, you missed that? You, didn't, you missed that? <laughs> I, missed I thought that he part. was playing James Khan. Yes. Jimmy Khan. That's it. Jimmy exactly. Khan. You know, and, I, and, and he's, he, Cumber, Benedict Cumberbatch is great. Um, uh, Peter Weller is interesting, although I think Peter Weller is going to be sinister in everything, so... Yeah. When it turns out that he's sinister, I was like, I told you he was sinister. It's Peter Weller. He was the good guy in Robocop. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But I agree. He's not a guy that you cast to be like, oh, yeah, that guy's a good guy. No, Bruce Greenwood is the good guy. Yeah. Bruce Peter Green. Weller is not the good guy. I the, the thing with Cumberbatch is he does such a great job of looking like 
he's got such that such odd features in some ways that they really he, work he when he plays alien. Sherlock. He looks he looks reptilian to me in this. Like they do a really good job of like, <laughs> and it, he oozes that cold blooded. Like it's just so. Oh man, he's so menacing. I I really he, and to go from like Sherlock to that is so like whiplashy. And and he's he's said. I mean, this is really cool. It, it amazes me that he got cast like two days before he started filming, which yeah. that's nuts. But he he said he he went to the the trouble of actually making every line reading sound a little bit alien, sound like a little bit like he had been manufactured, which makes sense. Right. And so so every, you know after hearing that, I'm kind of listening to him going, oh yeah, that's cool. Um. Because it really is a different line reading from anything he does in Sherlock or Parades End. Don't watch Parades End unless you want to watch him cry. Um, but cry, yeah. Con, cry. <laughs> it was an inspired choice because I, I, I actually, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall as the producers of this movie kept approaching actors initially approaching hispanic actors who were like come on you want to do your take on con like and 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 they were all like no i'm not gonna do that no forget (laughs) it forget it and they end up with this english guy and i think they i mean i guess it was a gamble because nobody really knew who benedict cumberbatch was at that point except those of us who had seen the first season of sherlock i guess but um they were they lucked out because um he brings a whole lot, right? I mean, you you gotta have, you've gotta have good a good interesting character with things to do, but you really have to have a, a charismatic actor. And Cumberbatch is that is that guy. I, when I saw this movie the second time, because I watched it twice, um, I was sitting next to what turned out to be Cumber fans who were <laughs> squealing Uh-oh. every time he appears on screen. It was cons- it was very strange, but uh, I totally get it. He's he's. Um, you know that they they were very fortunate to cast him. So suddenly, as we're talking about this, I really wanted there to be a scene in the movie where they cut away and Benedict Cumberbatch like goes to his little view screen and like pulls it up and then calls like Ricardo Montalbán and like yeah. So I know Spock's over yes. there getting advice from other Spock. I can really <laughs> use some advice. Open your shirt more. Smiles, everyone. Smiles. <laughs> Does the Enterprise Bridge still have fine Corinthian leather? <laughs> no, it's glass and white plastic. Do you still have their shield code? <laughs> the the four digit prefix. That's what you need. Yes. Although again, this is not this is not the Wrath of Khan because it's way earlier in everybody and it's a little more like a you know almost space seed except space seed wasn't that great an episode and was horribly sexist and so you know other any other thoughts about uh about cumberbatch or any of the other acting performances in into darkness i think that might be a good place to yeah to you, talk you about. mentioned a lot of the cast for the first movie but didn't mention one of my most pleasant surprises which is uh, chris pine the casting for kirk because that that i feel like is the toughest role to cast in all this some people might think it would be spock and maybe that's true i'm just kind of spoiled by by zachary quinto but you know what what do you do with william shatner right like you don't know whether you're gonna try to do a william shatner impression or be a different character but not end up as charismatic and chris pine has has walked that line he's not doing a william shatner impression he is charismatic i i connect with him like Someone in the chat room just said they didn't like him. I don't. I don't. I don't know how you can dislike him in these movies. He just he walks that line so amazingly well that not for a second do I question that this is a character that I like, that I'm rooting for, that's entertaining me, and I'm never. And I mean, some some of his readings he will do, you know, the Shatner thing, but 
just barely enough for you to go, okay, you can have that one, right? And then he goes on. In, in the last scene of the first movie, he does that bones thing. Yes. He, but, yes. he totally yeah. nails it in that one. I don't know how he does that, but it's Just awesome. a little Shatner, right? Just a little bit. A little Shatner goes a long way. Yes. Yeah, he knows just the right amount to put it in so you don't so you don't hate him. But it was enough to also be that callback moment of, oh God, it's really Kirk, right? Like that's, right. it's not just some other dude in a yellow shirt, right? You know, I think that was what sold it for me. Um, and then having these these different actors, but with a chemistry that is also very much like the original chemistry. Yeah, the relationships are familiar if the individual people aren't. It's like, I recognize right. that triangle, the Bones, McCoy, you know, like oh, you yeah. recognize it, even though it's di- cl- so clearly different people. It's like you said about with Shakespeare, you know, it's the same roles, different actors. Also, one of the brilliant things that I didn't mention when we were talking about the, the original movie in that podcast that didn't exist, John, um, is... We never, unlike so many um, shows and movies and things, you know, Star Trek started, the original Star Trek started with them on their mission. And so we haven't seen these characters at this point in their lives in either of these two movies, right? I mean, Kirk, even uh, one of the complaints a lot of people had about the about the 2009 movie is that, you know, he's made the captain of the Enterprise at the end of it. And it's like, really? He was just cheating at his Kobayashi Maru exam and now he's... Did you have no other captains that you could put in charge? And this movie, well, a lot of them did get blown up, though. right? Well, and Into Darkness addresses that, right? Where where Kirk gets busted back to first officer because he's not ready and he's not responsible. <laughs> I mean, for ten minutes, he learns a valuable lesson for that long. I mean, it is Star Trek. They should have made him. They should have busted him down to cadet, and then the whole movie could have been him just studying. Starfleet. <laughs> yeah, that's a good movie. <laughs> that's one of the nice things about about seeing Chris Pine. And his relationship actually with with Pike, with Bruce Greenwood, which is is his yeah. you know his father figure essentially, and it's great because in the original Star Trek and in the movies, other than Spock dying, Kirk does all this crazy stuff and he always gets away with it, right? And so it's good to have that early in his career, like he's got that tendency and he's got somebody to push back at him and say, you you know you are going to be in trouble if you if you have this attitude. I was pleasantly surprised to have Pike in as much of, a, of it as he is. Like in that first, you know, half hour or so, he he plays a pretty important part, and I I really like Bruce Greenwood. I've been a fan of his for years, um, and it was great to have that scene where they're sitting in the bar and you get the call back to yeah, remember that bar fight where you you know got the crap kicked out of you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paper towels <laughs> up your nose and everything, and like it was just it was a nice scene that it really humanizes Kirk, who as you said like oftentimes as the protagonist gets to get away with a lot of things. Um, but yeah, having him be much more of a human character and, and kind of a screw because he is always walking that edge, right? He's always walking the knife's edge and trying to like not quite play by the book, but get things done. And I, I they do a good job of capturing that. I like the fact that this Kirk, this timelines Kirk, uh, I connect with him more because basically because they killed his father off, right? Because I always felt like the, the you know, the, the original Kirk, was just maybe I mean no I know he's supposed to be smug but just maybe a little bit too smug and you feel like maybe his he had his life with his life was a little bit too easy going to Starfleet whereas this Kirk immediately you kill off his dad and so he's you know someone growing up without a father has to find another that's why he's such a a screw up at the beginning of the 2009 movie and in a way that I don't imagine you know the William Shatner Kirk being that kind of a screw up so it makes I think it makes him more interesting in a Star Trekky kind of way of like Luke being this annoying whiny loser uh, at the beginning of the movie, it gives the character a better arc. And I feel like this guy is now a wild card because he is he, basically he has had his formative experience of childhood without a father has to shape him into 
a more interesting, more dangerous, more damaged person than William Shatner. In some ways, this movie, um, you know, the theme of this movie, I would argue, actually is is um, willingness to sacrifice oneself and to place uh, the needs of the many out uh, in front of the needs of the few or the one. Which is funny because that's that's from Star Trek Two, but that's not the theme of Star Trek Two. I, I would argue Star Trek Two is about uh, coming to grips with aging and the inevitability of mortality. Like all the Star Trek movies. Like, well, I mean, that's actually one of the things that's interesting about this franchise now, too, is that uh, they had old people, you know, aging yeah. people in all the rules. So it was all about aging. And now we've got young people in those same parts. So it doesn't have to be about that. There's not a lot of action franchises that have a cast bolstered by old people, too, when you think well, about it. Like, it's, un- it's unusual. Hard. Die, Die hard. hard, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's an exception. Yeah, yippee con. Anyway, um, what I like about... Uh, about this this theme of sacrifice is that it gets to the heart of that Kirk not uh, not accepting defeat and cheating the Kobayashi Maru and in this movie you know Kirk has to talk about sacrifice and Spock and Khan addresses it and in the end it's that you know the the challenge that's put to him by Pike at the beginning and uh, restated by Khan which is uh, when he says what would you not do for your family. Um, and in the end, Kirk is put in that position where he has to make that choice, and he does it. He he sacrifices himself, or at least thinks he's sacrificing himself, uh, to save his ship and to save his crew. And, and that's um, – I, I agree with John. I, I think that this is interesting material because it's seeing Captain Kirk learn things that I'm well, not sure Ca- for, William Shatner's yeah. Captain Kirk learned. Yeah, rather than the getting old part, we kind of have this as the growing up part, right, where you realize – you can't always win. You can't always come up with the plan that's going to get around all the obstacles. You can't always cheat fate, essentially. And I think that's it's it's a nice it's a nice it's a nice bookend in some ways to the older Star Trek films where it's you know, you you're on the other side of that aging hump. Well, because Shatner's Kirk got to come of age with an intact set of parents in a Starfleet that was the Gene Roddenberry one where there's no money and everything, you know, we're all at peace and it's an exploratory thing. Whereas this Kirk right away is, you know, in a more damaged situation and in the context of a Starfleet that is now, you know, 9-11 style militarized as a reaction to all the stuff that happened in the first movie, which is, you know, a big theme of this movie as well. Yes. So. He does not. He 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 is going to end up being shaped into a different person. He just can't be that kind of la di da kind of smug. I win everything, and then think about my aging when I get to retirement age. Uh, of the Shatner's Kirk, <laughs> go to he, planets and kiss faces, all the alien girls. Yeah, I mean, like you said, they Still hasn't even. They, <laughs> yes, they haven't even started their five year mission. But you know, in this movie, right? And who knows if there's going to be a five mission? And they're they're dealing with like a militarized Starfleet, which is very, I mean, I can understand why Star Trek people may not like this movie because it's not the Star Trek they remembered, but it makes for much more interesting storytelling. Yes. And, and I would argue makes for some interesting debates about the decisions the characters make, which every time I hear somebody say, Oh, it was just explosions in action. And I remember when Star Trek used to be about issues. It's like, did you not see the movie? Did you not see Spock (laughs) talking about how drone strikes are immoral? And did you not see the whole thing about a guy in command of the military trying to create a war? I mean, hello. (laughs) And and going, going back to uh, sacrifice, there's also that thread of, Everything that Admiral Marcus is going to sacrifice is is using as a sacrifice, you know, sending 
Kirk and, you know, in the incursion into the Klingon space and all that stuff. He's he's willing to sacrifice Kirk and the Enterprise, uh, whether they want to or not. Right, not himself, right? And right. it's the same thing right. with sending sit on the edge of the neutral zone and fire your tor- tor- your torpedoes to the Klingon homeworld. It's, you know, the remote no risk versus the personal, a great personal risk uh, connection. Not to mention you get to, as a bonus, murder all the people who are actually in the torpedoes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hiding yeah, in the... Well, and this Star Trek film gets to the the sort of the root of one of my one of my frustrations with Star Trek over the years, which is to say, there's a, such a heavy f- uh, focus on the alien, um, and it's not that you know there isn't interesting things, and there's very much all, an ongoing thread in Star Trek about culture, right? Like cultures meeting, cultures having different cultures. You know, Wesley steps on a flower and he gets put to death or whatever. Um, <laughs> And I think so what bad. to me, the problem with that for me was always that, yeah, it's interesting from sort of a pie-in-the-sky theoretical point of view, but a lot of times I found it hard to relate to. I Like, like a lot of people consider sort of Spock and Data, you know, such interesting major characters and oh they don't feel emotion and what's that like and i always found them kind of boring because of that it's like that's not a person i can relate to and i think that having a story that revolves largely around you know people for lack of a better words rather than like guys in funny suits or guys with makeup on their foreheads it it makes it a more relatable story to me and makes it more interesting because no matter what happens in the future People are still fundamentally people. Like, even if you end up in that future where there's no, like, money and everybody's happy and hunky-dory, there's still people who get pissed off and people who, you know, try to dupe other people and all that stuff. And so, you know, rather than, I guess, maybe I'm being pessimistic and not wanting to see people's better nature a la Roddenberry, but, like, just the reality of it. Like, look, the people are always going to be petty and cruel to a certain extent, but they're also always going to be, you know, heroic and try to rise to the occasion. And that is something I can recognize and, as a story, I really enjoy. Roddenberry's future was a great tool to do actual science fiction because if you're going to, like, the thing was, like, put whitewash the uh, the human stuff. Like, we eventually evolved beyond that stuff. But now, let the better angels of our nature, as exemplified by Starfleet, land on other planets with other people, and it's an even more challenging situation because you now have to, you know... You get to sell Twilight. You get to tell Twilight Zone slash real, you know, speculative sci-fi type stories without being bogged down by all of the petty human type things. But at a certain point, like especially if you're a Star Wars fan, you find that uh, a little bit uh, antiseptic, and you want something else. I mean, it's it's the reason I guess they had the wherewithal to make Spock half human because a full Vulcan or Data or whatever, it's like, mm, yeah, all right, you can do a few things with that, but. Spock without inner struggle is like you know so the inner struggle makes makes a big difference yeah and in this one like it's like I like this one because it the Roddenberry version has to exist as a contrast to this one because it's like what if humanity didn't evolve up out of that you know sort of pit that we're all in into this enlightened state because we got sidetracked by the things that always sidetrack us like you know oh well suddenly there's danger and our fear response kicks in and we start making bad decisions uh, and, you know, good people have to fight against them, whatever. And I thought this movie, speaking of uh, uh, Peter Weller, it's not Miyazaki level here, but they did a reasonable job of not making him, you know, just crazy, ridiculous, bad guy who just wants to do terrible things. Like, 
he believes more or less that he's doing the right thing. They kind of lose it at the end a little right. bit. Right. At the end, he's a little more scenery chewing, but you're right. He's got, he's got a perspective, right? He's totally got a perspective. Right. Everyone has their reasons, right? And he, in the beginning of the movie, he has reasons. He's not just like, you know, rubbing his hands together and twirling his mustache. <laughs> and the Klingons are, even in uh, traditional Star Trek lore, they are not nice in uh, the original series. So they are a, a big threat. Yeah, when he says war is inevitable, it's like, well, yeah, war with the Klingons is inevitable. Exactly, it's going to happen. <laughs> what are you saying, Scott? Bomb all the Klingons? Jeez, just yeah, like... We have, to, we have to preemptive strike before they get us, I think. Only Patrick Stewart could bring these two races together. Only Nixon could go to China. <laughs> Originally, the topic of this podcast was going to be about the Star Trek movies versus Star Trek TV, and which will be a great topic, and we'll do it sometime. But something John brought up there, I would say, is, is part of the uh, interesting thing here is that movies have big budgets and need to bring in big audiences and it only can tell two hours of story and TV series can tell these little stories and then move on to the next planet. And Star Trek was conceived as a TV series and it's become a movie series. And even in the classic Star Trek movies, it, there was struggle there because some of the episodes, some of the movies that don't work so well read kind of like TV episodes, really long TV episodes involving <laughs> satellites. or or involving uh aliens who don't age because they live on a magical planet where they don't age but then they're the plastic surgery aliens who are very angry at that anyway we'll get there in a later episode but i I think that's i think that's part of it too is that is that a movie like these jj abrams movies it's going to be a big budget action movie it 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 kind of has to be and then the question is what else is in there and how effective is it as an adventure movie and does it make you think a little bit and does it have interesting character dynamics and and that's why i really like this movie is even though it it, it's got things you can pick apart and especially if you want to try to find fault you can find some fault but i enjoyed the whole thing and came out really you know excited and, and energized and happy and had a great had a great ride and when i thought about it more it unfolded more, but it's not going to be like a hundred episodes of a TV series. It just can't be. It's a two-hour action summer blockbuster, and and uh, it has to play by those rules to a certain extent. You know, speaking of finding fault, I was telling uh, Dan earlier tonight that I, I I don't know if this is a mistake, but it may be a mistake for the, from the perspective of this podcast. But I'm seeing a lot of these movies lately <laughs> with my son, who's nine now, uh, and seeing this movie or any movie like it with my son. I'm not going to say it completely blots out my ability to look to look objectively at the movie, but like I would mentioned this about Cars before, too, the Pixar movie. Is this your kryptonite? <laughs> if you are next to a nine-year-old, like I took him to see this movie. I showed him the 2009 version, which is when I got a chance to watch it again because I thought he would like it, and he did. And I took him to see this movie, and this movie was so perfect like this could be his like his star wars type movie it was so perfect for him because there was nothing really gory like it wasn't too scary and just the action scenes were just unbelievable i mean i enjoyed it too but i'm thinking to myself wait a second did you because i came out of that movie thinking it was just fantastic like and it's not saying the critical thinking parts of my brain had been disengaged because i saw things were wrong with it but i just could not come down off of that high and half of it was because i was sitting next to a nine-year-old the whole time who was just you know, floored by the whole movie. Like I was telling Dan, he came for the, we, we saw the movie and for the next three days, he would come from, from school, go into the computer room, go to trailers.apple.com and watch the Star Trek <laughs> Into Darkness trailer over and over and over again. You know, you, you can forgive a lot if you're having fun. And this is a, not to call back to what is one of my least favorite episodes of The Incomparable, but when we did The Avengers, you know, it, it was clear that, <laughs> and, that Andy and Ico didn't have fun when he was seeing that movie and he saw all the flaws. I would argue that most movies have lots of things you could pick apart if you 
you aren't having a good time and you forgive them if you are. And I know that seems sort of strange, but I think it's true that I, I will forgive a lot if in the end I really enjoyed it and, and I'll, I'll, and if I am not having fun, I will sit there and get very angry and I will tear everything apart. Right. And, 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 you know, start these Star Trek movies and into you're, darkness. You're a lot like a, the Hulk that way. I am like the Hulk. <laughs> Don't make me angry. No, I, I just, I, uh, I'm always angry, Dan. That's your secret. Well, here's the other thing about Into Darkness, though that that like I, I was I was I was actually mentioning this to Andy as well. If a movie like I saw, I know Avengers you guys again. all eat dinner together without yeah. me because <laughs> no, I'm we far we, away. we talked about the Avengers. Tonight, we did. Talk, we got him to recant saying, a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> and and what, what I was saying was that like it, the movie also needs something exemplary to to bring it up. And, and Into Darkness, what I thought it was was the the dialogue in the script. I thought there there were. Uh, Scenes that if you had described them to me in the abstract, I would say that's going to be death on the screen. Like, uh, you know, Spock and uh, and Uhura are going to be in a fight and oh, yeah. Kirk is going to be there. And like, like, oh, that's going to be terrible or whatever. But they pulled it off. Like yeah. it was just, you mm-hmm. know, three or four lines, all good lines, well acted, that provide like they were able to flesh out that relationship in the midst of an action movie in a way that was not cloying, that was clever and that felt meaningful and like the same thing if you described to me oh in the new star trek movies spock and her are gonna are gonna have a have a thing uh, and you're like what what wait a second what and i totally believe that relationship on screen now like i accept it as canon in this new universe it does not bother me in the slightest and i think it adds to the movie and i never would have predicted that so i think that this second movie here is it has removed most of the goofy silly things that i didn't like about the first movie added in their place like good, I mean, I, you know, I liked moonlighting too. Like, so I, you know, oh, yes. you can have have little silly spats between people that are that that illuminate their characters and surrounded by what I think is a perfectly competent space action movie. As Dan said, probably one of the best Star Wars movies that has come out in many many years. Uh, you know, how can I not like that? And like, I I do see the flaws now. Stepping away from it, and some of the the shine has worn off or whatever, but. The good stuff just so vastly outweighs it. You know, I still knowing those characters and having those characters. You, you, you know, there's there's good dialogue. You're absolutely right. One of my favorites is um, when Kirk and Uhura are talking in the turbo lift about Spock, and he apologizes because he said your boyfriend's bothering. He's like, no, that was unprofessional. And she says, no, you're right. And then the line that he says when 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 he says, are you having a fight? And then he has that moment where he says. Oh my God! What must that be like? Yeah, Just what the, is that? What's how, that how would that be to be in a fight with Spock? It's like oh, so funny! Just so great. Oh, and then the door is yeah, open. Or, and he's standing or, there, right? Or when he asked, oh. so he asked a question about whether her is still going to be mad at him, and Spock looks at him and says something like "uncertain," <laughs> which which works as a, which works as a logical Spock line, but also works as a you know wry kind of yeah. knowing between friends statement about yeah. And of course, the the line that my wife and I have. Kind of surprisingly quoted back to each other since we saw this movie over and over again is no more metaphors. That's an order. <laughs> I wonder if if I should. Uh, uh, I, I so the second time because I'm a gigantic nerd. The second time I saw this movie, I took notes for the podcast. For the uh-huh. podcast, sure. Did you have your Starfleet uh, technical data on your lap? Do you have one of those uh, pens with a light? Yeah, I didn't have one of those pens with a light. Um, so, and I didn't have any reference material with me, but I did, my handwriting is so terrible that in absolute darkness, it's no worse. It's amazing. <laughs> so you, what you say you went into darkness? Wrote notes into uh, darkness. Nemesis! Duh. Scott! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, 
obviously this is chronological because I took the notes as I was watching the movie, but if there are parts where everybody wants to jump in uh, and talk about it, we'll just like quickly step through the movie. Um, I want to start with the opening sequence, which is uh, James Bond-like in a way, right? You have this mm-hmm. fun action thing that, that opens it up, plus it gives you that flavor of the original TV series, like they're on a mission where they're aliens and they're going to violate the Prime Directive. Um, but I wanted to point out, too, watching it the second time, I was thinking, um, as Spock is risking his life to save this planet, uh, that there's a parallel there between this planet and Vulcan, which they didn't save, and they're trying yep. to save these people. Yes. Um, it's it's a callback. It's a movie filled with callbacks to Star Trek II, I'll grant you. What's interesting here is that um, something I hadn't thought of originally um, in Star Trek Two, we they, they fake the death of of Spock and the rest of the crew in the Kobayashi Maru at the he, so here Spock almost dies again at the very beginning of 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 the second Star Trek movie. I thought that was kind of knowing, and obviously this is also Spock's moment of self sacrifice and and duty That's where true. he finally accepts his fate at the end. It's interesting that he is kind of you know really like gunning to do it he's like okay this is the moment this is my big moment i can just embrace death and he you know he shows he's very calm and he centers himself and he shuts off his emotions and then they save him obviously but uh i thought it was interesting that he was he was kind of like almost eager to to die in that volcano you may be projecting so well no i think there's a point there though the 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 Again, that's sort of, if you want to play with destiny or that there are things that are commonalities between the the two timelines, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting, and this is jumping forward a little bit, but, you know, in in Star Trek II, I think, you know, Kirk has to come to terms with sort of being bumped upstairs, right? Because he's an admiral. Yes. And and instead, we have Kirk here busted down (laughs) and taken off the, you know, off the captain's chair. So, you know, again, interesting divergence. In a Star Trek The Motion Picture reference, so Pike's outfit is basically the outfits from Star Trek The Motion Picture, and when he comes to tell Kirk what's going on in the bar, he says, they gave her back to me, which is the line, that's that's mm-hmm. a line that Kirk says in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So the references don't just start start and stop with Wrath of Khan. There are references Khan. throughout. Um, you have to talk about uh, the Enterprise underwater, though. Yeah, we should. You're right. You're right. Now it is airtight because yes. it goes to space, That's but true. space has no pressure, and and there's pressure in the. Uh, also, it's in the atmosphere. Although there are other, it, it was built atmosphere. in the atmosphere. It was yeah. built in the atmosphere, and we've seen like Star Trek Voyager. The Voyager could land on a planet, and in Tomorrow Is Yesterday, the classic episode, they're down with the clouds when they kidnap that poor fighter pilot. So, but we haven't seen the Enterprise underwater before, and why is it underwater? Because it's cool. Because, because it's, it's cool. cool, that's why it's underwater. <laughs> they want that scene of them coming out of the water. I mean, it looked very cool, but as I was thinking about also it, the like, fish. this makes it makes no sense to hide your your spaceship in the water. But uh, I will give them that. But it, I have to quibble with it because it. it well, I, I like the idea that it's probably just Kirk who's like, you know, what's a great idea? We could put it underwater. <laughs> and everyone's like, no, no, no. I'm the captain. Put it underwater. They could have explained it away with boring dialogue. They could have been like, well, the atmosphere is ionized and the transporters won't work. So we had to bring the ship down, but we don't want anybody to see it. But well, they, they Honestly, that. that's so boring that, you know, who cares? They did say that there it's was a cool. magnetic field. They can't use the transporters. And, uh, yeah, after there's, a certain there's some reason they, they the just transporters don't work. But. Blurgy, blurgy, blurgy. Yeah. Well, they hid, they hid the Enterprise in the rings of Saturn in the first movie, which also makes zero sense. Yeah. Or in mean, tit- Titan's atmosphere, but yeah. Or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, none, none of these things make sense from a space science it's fiction it's cool. point of view. They like the Enterprise coming out of things. And it was cool, but I, I just have to say, I think there are probably better solutions to that same problem. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, what the solution to having a cool opening scene to a movie that's on a planet? That's the that's the problem they were solving. <laughs> you know, maybe they should have hidden it in the Mutara Nebula. When when we're back on Earth, uh, we see Captain Kirk making out with a couple of cat ladies. As you do. Um, and if, when you go back, when you watch this again sometime, the beginning of that scene, I, I could it could be Saurian Brandy or something, but it looks kind of like there's a space bong in that apartment. <laughs> I'm just saying, watch for it. All bongs are space bongs. I think there might be a space bong. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a recreational drug user, but I'm just saying... Are you a space narc, Jason? There may be a space pond <laughs> in the cat girl's apartment, or Kirk's. Or, or Kirk's apartment. It's, 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 a, it's an artifact of cultural significance to her uh, race, Jason. Yes. Yeah, Don't be insensitive. Sorry, cat girls. Sorry, half-naked cat ladies. 98% naked cat ladies. Um, <laughs> let's, let's see. The... Um, the uh, death theme starts with uh, his argument with Pike, where he, where Kirk is arrogant and says, "How many died? Not one. I didn't lose one person. Nobody dies today, Jason. That's do right. We, uh, do we skip over it, or is it subsequently the uh, Mickey? Mickey kills a bunch of people. Yeah, I think that's that, a little later. That's coming that's, up. That's later. I think okay. that's next. I, right. I thought it was right after the. So right, Mickey, Mickey from uh, also the Cumberbatch fans next to me, uh, when he came on screen, they were like, oh, "It's Mickey!" and I just started laughing. Like, yeah, <laughs> and then they said, "Then they said, oh, you put on weight.'" <laughs> well, it's it was ten years ago. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey from 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 Doctor Who, and, and he's sad. It was daughter is dying, and Benedict Cumberbatch comes to him, and here's your self sacrifice again. You know, he will he will uh, save his daughter in exchange for him. You know, uh, sacrificing himself and his honor. And blowing up the the Starfleet facility, and he takes the deal. Here's the thing about that that segment of the movie, because when I was this is one early on in the movie when I all my critical thinking was still engaged, and I was thinking like this this plot line of this guy who's going to do this thing, who's basically going to be a pawn of Khan to to fulfill this part of the plot. There's not room in this movie for you to actually do that. So the way they chose to fit it in was to almost do it as like a silent movie where there's. Almost mm-hmm. no dialogue. Like Mickey is there, yeah, and he's great on. Great like, music keep, keep cue. Going on Mickey, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But like they basically did it. Like they said, look, we have enough time for like three lines. There's no way we can come up with three lines that do anything but cause damage to this. So let's just play it like a silent movie. Show him. Show the sick daughter. Show this. Just have you know two lines between him and Khan. And it, it's the like I don't know if it worked that well even in the silent mode, but I applaud them for finding a creative solution to getting these plot points and not excising that plot line entirely because that was another option because you got a whole lot of other movies to fit in here, but to have it in there and still have it be affecting and moving and interesting and exciting when the little ring blows up and all that other stuff with almost no dialogue. It was it was kind of like the opening section on Up, you know, with, with uh, no speaking parts. I, I was thinking Right, that, it's almost yeah. a montage to music. Um, and I agree. I and, and Jason, you mentioned the music there and I know couple people were mentioning on twitter before we started talking about this that they want us to talk about the music and i'll say that that cue is very uh it's very unlike the rest of the music from this movie or the previous movie you got this piano soft piano music playing and it's it's incredibly effective uh for what it is um and it's one of the cues that stands out more to me in this movie um much as i like a lot of uh, Giacchino's work for the score is pretty good, especially some of the main themes. But um, I'm, I'm sort of mixed on his work overall. Yeah, mm-hmm. he. he um, this is. I, I read an, a review of the the Into Darkness soundtrack that said it's like the expansion pack for the original soundtrack, and that's about right, right? I mean, it's he he's going to go use his themes that he already had, and then he's added some some more in. 
and I, you know, I bought the soundtrack, and I, I like it. But it is, in some ways, it's well, it's more of the same. It's well, hampered it's in some ways by the same. Yeah. Also, by the problem with the original, which was that if you bought the original soundtrack, there was actually that deluxe edition. I think Ben Boychuk actually turned me on to that. Was there was like a double disc version, which is much better because yeah. it's actually fleshed out rather than being these very at times random and disjointed cues. Right. But overall, I mean. <laughs> He doesn't really hold up if you put him up against someone, to me, like John Williams, where you can listen to a John Williams cue in a vacuum, and it's a fantastic piece of music, whether or not it's applied to film. Yeah, Whereas the sequel, like, there's no Imperial March in this movie. Like, you, no. to follow up the soundtrack to Star Wars with a soundtrack that has some, a song as iconic as the Imperial March, like, that's a tall order. And I think it, he's doing well to have, like, the first movie, I think he landed solidly on both feet with a theme that was both like recognizable Star Trek, but not simply a restatement of the original song. And that, you know, that segues into it in the end as your little reward. And to just continue that in a competent manner in this movie, I think is a reasonable achievement. And it may be too much to ask for him to like, you know, throw another amazing song in there out of nowhere. Now, most Star Trek uh, movie scorers have found a, uh, you know, their take on a, a Star Trek theme. And then when they've done other Star Trek movies, they use that again. That was true with, um, with Jerry Goldsmith and it was true with James Horner. And, and, you know, that's sort of been how they do it. Yeah. So some nice work, but overall, maybe not the, not, it does a great supporting job. Yeah. I like, movie. I like the, I like his Star Trek theme a lot and I like, Oh yeah, I, like I agree. The score here. It's, it's the best you know, part of it. Yeah. yeah, and I, I love how his Star Trek theme weaves in and out of the original theme. Yes. And it, I mean, it just fits. And I liked hearing that here, too. I And again, I, I think the original film had a better score, but uh, I, ju- I just love how they weave in and out of each other. Yeah, Expansion I mean, pack. yeah, I was a big Expansion fan. Pack, yeah. <laughs> I mentioned on... Uh, on the, this, I think episode was it like episode two or three, whatever the one we did with Ben was on new movies, yeah, movie yeah. scores. Uh, that actually Star Trek the Motion Picture, despite being kind of a terrible, abysmal movie at the times, has a fantastic Great score because it's Jerry Goldsmith oh, yeah. who is who is a master. Um, and this to me, if you put these two things next to each other, I'd say, well, I really like Giacchino's theme, but uh, Goldsmith, I would have to give props on just like every every piece on that works so well, even. If you don't care about the movie, like you can, I listen to that score sometimes in of itself. And I haven't seen the Star Trek, the motion picture in 15, 20 years. And I still know I can still, it's still evocative and it still works. The problem with the Goldsmith stuff is that, is that he scored Star Trek one and Star Trek five. Right. And so there's good music in bad (laughs) movies. And then they, and then it was the next generation theme, which means it's sort of like marked for all time as being the Star Trek, the next generation theme now. So they couldn't, they couldn't reference that. In yes. a movie like Correct. this, because it's it, you know it, it was taken away. And That's fine. Giacchino again, his theme is is excellent. I really like it. It's very catchy. It does a great job of setting the scene and the tone, and is very distinct. As I think David was saying, making a point. It's it's clearly a Star Trek theme, or it's clearly a theme that has like homages to the past, but is 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 appropriate for this different universe and timeline that we're in. It's a little more martial. It's got a little more of a march going on. You know, there's there's a little more adventure element to it rather than being sort of 60s and sci-fi, right? Yeah, and, it, and it's also got that mournful element because it's, you know, it's like, I think the first time you start to hear it is when Kirk's father dies and then it's the opening of the original one. Um, it's, it, it's just lovely. Uh, one of the things that I really like about Giacchino's scores for this and for the 
Mission Impossible 3 and 4, I guess it's not really called 4, Ghost Protocol, whatever, um, is that they they pay really nice homage to the original themes and the original styles. And again, there, there may be not cohesive scores that you would just listen to on their own, but the different elements are really nice and they fit and they just sort of fit these different elements of the story, especially in Mission Impossible. I, I think those actually might be better scores than the, the Trek ones. Although, again, this, I, I love the Trek theme better than anything in the Mission Impossible movies. Well, there's a difference. I think there's a difference in when you, uh, with this type of movie that we're talking about, where the music is underneath the action and goes along with it. And there's a switch that happens when the movie changes from like an action scene that is scored with music to be a music video for an awesome song. Right. Like, that, that switch happens when it's like an iconic theme or when you picture, like it's almost as if the movie was choreographed to the music. Like the right. music came first and then right. they just made a bunch of spaceships that did, you know, in certain scenes, you know, have that. I mean, we just talked about the Luke Skywalker, you know, dual sons scene or whatever that is like, shooting a music video for that for that uh you know swelling movement in this thing right or even if it's just something as simple as like the the, the music that we can all hear when when uh, luke is aiming a photon uh, photon torpedo ha huh. yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm revoking your star wars card <laughs> yeah it's happening they're crossing the streams here uh in, into the exhaust part like we can all hear that and you know and, and or, or any of these things where and another example that's not from science fiction is like the movie Goodfellas, where it, it, it took extensive use of uh, pop culture songs that we know, and they're so dominant in our minds that again the movie becomes uh, let's just let's just have some video to go along with this great song and like make it all work together. And it's not a crime for that not to happen, but I mean I think it was almost a conscious choice not to do that. And I think back to you know again the the wordless Mickey ring blowing up scenes, which were not just scored in a more subdued kind of like the way you might do a drama or, or something, but also like shot, they were more dark and depressing. I mean, it is England, right? Whatever. But you know, <laughs> rainy and overcast and and kind of like, and like when is the last time you saw a, a, a science fiction movie or a Star Trek movie in particular really commit to a mood like that for like three scenes in a row? I mean, that was, has there been a Star Trek movie that has been that dark in that segment, both literally and like, you know, figuratively and emotionally? I, I when I think back to all the other Star Trek movies, I think of well when they're around the campfire in Yosemite in Star Trek Five. That's pretty <laughs> yeah, dark. That's, re- that's that's a dark moment for other reasons. It was, it's grim. I don't know about dark. Yeah, Deep Space Nine is not a movie, but it's pretty. That's dark. true. But it so is it's pretty, pretty dark. dark. But in the mo- in the movie franchises, it's it's. Uh, but, but but it's shot like a TV set. So maybe yeah. maybe something in First Contact. Yeah, when Picard is is upset and he breaks his little ships. Maybe oh yeah, it's kind of dark. <laughs> yeah, the line must be drawn here. That's right. here. Okay, back to the uh, back to the movie here. Um, uh, uh, John Harrison, sorry, <laughs> who is he? John, John Harrison, Harrison. Uh, attacks the uh, the meeting that is being held where they have everybody, which is apparently a Godfather three. Yeah, <laughs> parallel. Yeah, if you're going to reference a Godfather movie, Not, don't, don't make one. a Godfather three. <laughs> All the five ships are there, um, and Pike dies, which is very sad, and Kirk is very clever and sort of makes Khan's little shuttle sorry Harrison Harrison's oh, little shuttle blow you know up we should we should talk about the uh lax security on Starfleet uh headquarters <laughs> and, and Earth in general wartime. <laughs> and its archives they're not so good 
Well, he's got uh, he's got clearance, obviously, but he's he's out there shooting stuff for a long time, and there's yeah, nobody and nothing, coming. Nobody to comes stop by. Him. No. Well, there's a couple of guys with rifles, right? Who get shot? Where people people. Get shot. We have no weapons. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They <laughs> have lots of weapons, though. Um, so uh, my next note is actually um, about the uh, about the torpedoes that Scotty doesn't want to have the torpedoes on the ship, and he quits, and then Spock argues very strongly against the uh, the drone strikes against Harrison on uh, on uh, on Kronos, the Kronos. Klingon homeworld, which they misspell, by the way. But well, that's the human spelling. Psh, humans, it's trans, it's transliterated. <laughs> They don't know Klingon yet. They haven't learned it yet, except for Uhura, who knows Uhura it. Uhura knows it, I was going to say. Which is funny, because isn't it in Star Trek VI where she oh, can't yeah, she speak has. Klingon? But, yes, yes, yes. Um, when I saw this in 3D, I noticed that the lens flares are also in 3D, and it really doesn't make any sense, and it's very weird. Oh, God. I don't <laughs> mind that... the lens flares in 2D. In 3D, I don't see why they're there. It's very bad. Again, I mentioned uh, there's that great scene on the bridge where McCoy is... Uh, repeating metaphors he's sort of given before and Kirk has had enough and orders him to stop having metaphors, which I, I made me laugh. Um, so the Klingons, we should talk about that. We have we have what I would say is maybe the most unnecessary action sequence in the movie, which is the, the spaceship chase on the Klingon planet where they go through the narrow space and We'll fit. We'll fit. That's a very. It's a very Star Wars. Actually, right. it's, it's yeah. It's yeah. Millennium Falcon. Straight out Empire. Yeah, but not not done as well because I don't no. think it advances any of the characters to be in that scene. Like it, the only thing is that on their descent they have good dialogue, but then in the action sequence there's kind of nothing. Yeah, they just try to let off a couple of zingers, but like you're not to give an example from Star Wars. Like when Han Solo is being chased around by the Empire and going through all the asteroids and everything. What's at stake is his like he's trying to impress a girl basically like he doesn't want to look like he's the guy who screwed up and like you know it's he feels pressure to successfully escape for reasons that have nothing to do with his life and like that that's the subtext of that whole chase sequence whereas the subtext of this one is like he's going down on the planet where something's going to happen with (laughs) that con guy i gotta get down there and and in between this chase scene takes place yeah it didn't it didn't really work also i don't really understand there's this whole thing about it's a it's a an empty part of the planet where there was a disaster and the moon is kind of blown up, which is, I guess, a Star Trek Six reference too. I guess, the, but it doesn't really make much sense. And it's never explained. And why have they abandoned? Why have the Klingons abandoned part of their planet? Well, you know, if a moon is crashing into your city, you'll probably yeah. abandon I it. Guess. But, but every three days it resets, though, right? When you're caught no, between the moon and Quoto right. City. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. I question Klingon architecture. Klingon architecture? Yeah, the city uh, where he's he's the ship is going through these things. It just it, I, I found it very confusing. The whole, yeah, yeah. Uh, thing. Although I do I do like the uh, the look of the Klingon birds of prey, or or whatever they are. They're little flyer, little security flyer thingies. But they've got that they've got that bird of prey design. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then and so then they they end up down on the planet, and Uhura goes out, and I, I think it's a nice scene where Kirk. Although he does it a little late, is gets out the guns. It's like, okay, yeah. she's gonna go talk to them. Here are your guns. <laughs> um, but um, and then there's a firefight because Klingons are warlike and they don't like to listen to people. And and uh, Harrison um, shoots him up and kills them all. And then as a thank you, Kirk decides he's going to give him lots of punches. Yes, and, it makes sense. And I actually thought this was not only you know obviously it's showing that he is a Superman. He's got these amazing. Uh, abilities because he like he jumps like 15 feet at one point and he sh- kills all the klingons and that but then when kirk punches him 
it has no effect. And I wrote down on my little notepad, revenge punches do no good. Revenge is pointless. This is an important lesson for Captain Kirk to learn. <laughs> Don't punch. Revenge punches, ineffective. Also, Khan, very powerful. Although if that was a regular guy, those punches would have been effective. Yes. <laughs> if, if he had just laced his fingers together, perhaps. Maybe. And used both his hands at the same time, <laughs> I think that, that would have been more effective. Pistol whipped him yes. with a phaser. I did like seeing the batleths in battle. So that was oh fun. yeah, that was a nice touch. Okay, so they take they take uh, John Harrison, yes, back to the Enterprise and put him in the brig, um, which is kind of a, a neat. Um, it's kind of a neat set, and there's like the little hole that you can move around that McCoy oh, like has that, him stick yeah. his arm through, which is kind of futury. And he's he's very Hannibal Lectory in that scene too. You know, he's standing tall and marching around, and he's like behind bars, and yet you're still really terrified of him. He's he's definitely a caged animal, uh, which I liked. It's a pretty bad assignment for whoever who has to sit in that little desk in the brig. <laughs> well, the two, like, right? <laughs> yeah, and ignore everything that's happening. Yeah, like the guy and then the alien who's got the funny head. Yeah, and they, they sit just, there. They just kind of sit there, and just just wait. Just something's gonna happen. You guys Maybe. wait here. Yeah, yeah. That scary guy might break out, so don't don't let him do that. Um, we meet. I guess we did this earlier, but the, the, this is where Carol Marcus becomes more important. Okay, oh, uh, Marcus. And and this is another one of my again. If I'm gonna list, I, I love this movie, but I'm gonna list one of my problems with it. I don't see the point of Carol Marcus in this movie. She comes on under assumed name because she wants to find out what her dad is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. <laughs> And uh, but she doesn't. I mean, what does she do in this movie? She, she, she's a pawn at one point in the End Game. Yeah, but it's not necessary. I, I I felt like she was not a necessary character. Well, she she's necessary for Kirk eventually. Eventually, but not in this movie. She made uh, Spock jealous. She's she's there for the underwear. So that scene doesn't make any sense. Let me let me ask <laughs> if you guys can explain this to me. She and Kirk like go to a shuttlecraft that doesn't go anywhere, and she yeah. tells him to not turn around, and she t- she like takes off her clothes and is just in her underwear, and then no. and then they go back to the bridge. It doesn't I it doesn't make no, any ter- sense. It's terrible. I think what's his name? Uh, Lindelof or da- Damon Lindelof? Right. He's already apologized. Apologized uh, mm-hmm. as as well he should. I think yeah. this is progress. Pr- progress will eventually be not having scenes like that. But the intermediate step is having the scene like that and then feeling embarrassed about it and making a public statement that you apologize for later. I and mean, the best you can say for it is that at least it was brief. See, I have no problem with the cat girls because right, they're, I mean, they're they're naked and he's naked and they're enjoying themselves and good for them. But this is like <laughs> why there's no reason for it. It's embarrassing. They can cut that out of the uh, Blu-ray release. Yeah, the Phantom Edit will take care of the the Edit into Darkness, <laughs> whatever that is. So we end up. I'm I'm skipping some stuff because you know it was dark and I didn't want to write a lot. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the the um, the Vengeance. I think it is the USS Vengeance. Yeah, Admiral Marcus's ship, which Scotty goes and finds. They call. Uh, amusing scene again where Kirk calls Scotty and Scotty's in downtown San Francisco at a at a a club a pub. with yeah. with with his little buddy Keenser and he gets a call and wants his help and and of course he does it and he ends up finding that that over in Jupiter <laughs> behind a moon at Jupiter they're building this giant uh warship I do like the contrast uh that's painted at a few points in the movie of uh that that the enterprise is not even though it gets in big battles in these big action movies, it's not. It's an explorer ship. We see it saving, trying to save aliens on a far off planet at the beginning. It's not it's a, a warship. 
It it can be a submarine, but it's it's, it's not a warship. It's for exploration. It's, it's like Die Hard again. It's the Bruce Willis yeah. of these movies. I guess the crap beat out of it all the time. Right, but but it's not meant to just be a weapon of of death. It's supposed to be an ex- exploration vehicle, and that's what Scotty says when he quits. And and here is the warship. Right, this is the the personification or like, what shipification of of um, what the Enterprise isn't. So you know, and 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 so I liked that contrast. Also, Star Trek three scott reference here which is in star trek three scotty sabotages the big fancy ship oh, yeah. to save the enterprise mm-hmm. and here scotty sabotages the big fancy ship again the, scotty's the really trans. good at breaking didn't they have a trans well, the excelsior yeah. yeah so yeah. this is like that yeah scotty don't get on scotty's bad side Scotty will break. Scott, Scotty's a badass, all right? Scotty Scotty's... will sneak onto your ship and break stuff. And break it. Piss him off. <laughs> See, I like the Excelsior, though. I was kind of yeah. annoyed that he broke that. Said, that was the a, Excelsior that was a cool is pretty ship. cool. There's a moment, yeah. and, and in this movie, there's a moment where Sulu's like, hey, the chair, it's actually pretty nice. It's like, yeah, yeah another, wait for yeah. it. You'll get there. More, but I, more I like that Scotty, foreshadowing. I like that Scotty broke broke those ships. And on the, I know there's a line of dialogue where they say that, that uh, the vengeance is supposed to be run by minimal crew. But it's like a really big ship, and Scotty, <sighs> Scotty appears to be able to walk for hours and never yeah. see anybody. Anyone. It's true. He's not. There's no jeopardy. He's not like ducking behind, and and the guys are walking down a corridor, and he's crossing. He's literally like do 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 do, walking through vast stretches of starship, and there's nobody there. Which seemed it just seemed not very dramatic to me. I, I feel like it, I always wonder what all the people are doing on the Enterprise because it seems like the only people who are <laughs> important is like the people on the bridge, be flown a by one guy, guy. In sick bay, yeah. and a couple guys in engineering. And even in engineering, I'm like, what are all the other non-Scotty people doing? And besides dying tragically occasionally, they're just so, taking up oxygen. They're the making sure Scotty doesn't sabotage the ship. Yeah, yeah right. Ac- <laughs> accidentally, it's all about job security. I mean, look at look how a hard time a Chekhov had with taking over for Scotty. Right, like he's got all that stuff arranged in the way he likes it. Put on that a red was, shirt. That was kind of an odd thing too. I would imagine someone he was like, "Hey, Chekhov, you've been shadowing Scotty for a while. Take over this uh, warp drive." <laughs> Seemed like an odd choice on Kirk's part. How would you like to be the uh, long-serving second-in-command of the uh, engineering deck uh, to be told that the that the the <laughs> 18-year-old kid was going to be your boss instead of you? Just you know that Russian kid? Your... He's taken over. <laughs> He's a genius. He's uh, that. It's that Kirk. He's always going to promote the bridge people over uh, over everybody Myopic. else. Myopic. Yeah. So there, there. So we. Um. There's another interesting action sequence. It's kind of a replay of the first movie where they get in little suits and zip around and in, in the, the debris fields between the two ships. Yes. You know, it's not a bad scene. Although I, I I'm not sure it isn't kind of superfluous. It, it yeah, is. JJ likes that. He likes those suits and he likes traveling really fast in them. But what I like about this part of the movie, and it goes back to that thing about. Uh, one of the themes of this movie being a, a question of uh, – it's not a purely polar kind of there's a good guy and a bad guy part, right? There's a great turn in this movie where they take Khan out of the brig and they and they, um, and they they take him to sickbay and they draw his blood. That might be important later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you know, there's a moment where they realize what Marcus is doing and all of a sudden the logical thing to do is to work with Khan. And I love that moment. I love the fact that we're we're in a position now where working with this guy who we know is the bad guy of the movie, there's another bad guy in this movie too. And uh, I, I love that there's this whole action scene where Khan and Kirk are trying to help each other survive and get to the other ship. 
Uh, and then, of course, it turns back on that ship. And he says, I think we're helping him. But I love the fact that this movie is all my going into it. With, I, you know, I had these expectations of it's all about Benedict Cumberbatch. He's the bad guy. And then in the middle of the movie, all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. What if he's not really the worst guy in this movie? Uh, are we supposed to pull Maybe for him a little bit? Maybe people can change, Jason. Well, no. I mean, he's still a bad guy, but he's necessary but he's got, for the, he's got, for the he, good unlike, guys. I mean, we got the same problem that we have with, with Marcus, which is that uh, his intentions, or at least the intentions that he presents, are ostensibly moral, right? Yeah. Like he wants to save his friends who are have all been like frozen in carbon. Now, granted... <laughs> Carbonite? Carbonite. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little tired. Uh, close enough. Uh, but I mean, granted, once they get out of their torpedoes, they might try to take over the They'll rest of the you, galaxy. Right? But oh, yeah. eh, I mean, right now we're talking about you know, there's still on ice. He wants to help his friends, right? And, and that that's what resonates. That's how he gets Kirk, right? What wouldn't you do for your family? Is you know, he he's realized exactly where where to get Kirk. And, but there's clearly a part of that that is not just. If he was really just a bad guy, he would let all of those people die, right? And just try to, like, take over the world by himself. But he's not. He actually seems to have some investment in those people. And that gives him a redemptive quality, which makes him more interesting as a villain or antagonist, if you want to use that word. I thought that was a good Kirk moment when, uh, you know, Cumberbatch is making his pitch to like, you know, we should work together or trust me or let me explain the situation. And I guess it was uh, Kirk and Bones and they both turn away from him and walk towards the <laughs> camera. And Kirk says, you know, I don't know, maybe we should like think about it. It shows like Kirk had come back from his just being mad and wanting to punch the guy in the face to being the sort of canny, savvy Kirk. Right. Who's always looking at the situation and trying to figure things out and is completely willing to turn on a dime and say... He makes a good case. We should really think about this. And then Bones is like, oh, you're crazy. We can't you know, trust this guy. So that, that was a good Kirk moment. That's Kirk no longer focused on vengeance and, think, and thinking about it more clearly and knowing how dangerous Khan is, but realizing that this situation has gotten a lot more complicated than maybe he thought it was. And yeah, it's, it, it is good. And, and you know, McCoy's like, are you out of your mind? He's like, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to him. And, but from Khan's perspective, he says... Um, you know, despite you trying to punch me and stuff, um, you know, the reason basically the reason he lets them live uh, is um, he sees something in Kirk, he, or at least he says that, right? That you're not like Marcus. You've got a little more sense. And part of that is, yes, I can use you. But part of that is I can trust that you are going to behave in, a, in, a, in a, a more rational way than that other guy. And that's interesting, too. The, the fact that Khan got you, Jason, to believe like that well maybe he is going to be kind of it shows like that's because he well i i didn't believe that he was going to be kind of good i believed that at that point in the film he was less of a threat to them (laughs) than (laughs) admiral marcus was and i was delighted by that that wait a second khan is not the biggest threat in the movie right now (laughs) well i mean he really he was but like it's good that like he it shows him he's not the immediate threat his superior intellect is on display because he is able to play them like you know a musical instrument to get essentially what he wants until his iq suddenly drops in the last scene but you know <laughs> right but, they, but their their um their interests are aligned and that was interesting that in in a in a world of if it's just a black and white kind of moral world um he's the bad guy and so he's the bad guy but in this moment he's not he his interests and kirk's interests are aligned which is they have the problem of this other ship and they need to do something about it and uh that i that's what tickled me is that you know it wasn't 
he was he's a bad guy and he's going to do very bad things. But at this moment, we actually need him and he needs us. That's a traditional sort of, you know, it's a trope in some ways, right? Yeah. Like, you know, uh, Superman needs Lex Luthor's help to do something or, you know... <laughs> Well, I mean, this is a yeah. it's a thing that we see over and over in television and comic books and all of that is there's a time when the villain needs to team up with the good guys in order to fight a larger threat. Well, and I know it's a uh, the screenwriter said it's uh, they a feature they liked of kind of the Hong Kong action movie. We're in that third yeah. act. You have the two guys who have been pitted against each other. Who suddenly there's a larger threat that they have. Oh, to- uh, uh, I'll give you a good American example: L.A. Confidential. Sure. Yeah. Another another perfect yeah. example of these two guys who are at odds yeah. for like an entire movie, and at the end realized eh, maybe we actually have more in common than we think about. But yeah, and knowing that it's Captain Kirk and Khan, I think makes it that much better, right? Because it's like those two guys are going to work together. All right. You know, I I like that. <laughs> and thus began an odd couple comedy. <laughs> That's right. He's a mess, and he wants to take over the galaxy with his superior intellect. Together. Okay. That uh, mostly superfluous uh, action scene where they're flying through space in their spacesuits and everything. That's uh, that's an example. Like that scene would have been as pointless as the spaceship scene, but they did add one part that actually related back to the story arc and the characters, which is that at a certain point they make it they make you wonder whether. Uh, Kirk has been abandoned by Khan, which would fit with Khan, you know, having tricked you into letting him off the ship is now just going to go on his own. He doesn't need to do, but he comes back and saves Kirk, which makes you re-question whether he really is, you know, has some intent. Not that I'm saying that justifies the entire scene, but at the very least, there was something that happened. There's, there's that subtext. That had, that had to do with, like, okay, advancing the story and, you know, going whatever. Mostly it was so they could fly through space, and I think it was kind of cool looking. But, it was you know. cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that just it justified it enough for me. I I did not mind it at all. I wouldn't have lost that scene before the scene where they're flying around on the Klingon homeworld. Right. That was a less interesting scene. Or the scene where Carol Marcus is just taking off her clothes for no reason. Also, Scotty gets to suck that guy at the airlock. That that, cool. is, that is good. And that's why they uh, he waits to hit the button because he's got to time it right. So <laughs> that was nice. So what are we left with? We're, we're left with uh, the, I would say based on the feedback I've gotten, over the last few weeks, the most controversial thing for some people in the movie, which is this movie decides to um, spend, you know, a bunch of people have said to me, well, it's just kind of a remake of The Wrath of Khan, which it totally isn't. It's a completely different plot. There is a 15-minute period where they play the effects of the, the end of The Wrath of Khan and they and they reverse it, and Kirk makes the decision to sacrifice himself to get the engines going so that the ship doesn't crash into the into the ocean. Um, and I, I I heard people say, well, that's very unoriginal. Where for me, it's like, well, for me, it's an homage, it's a reference, it's dramatic, but at the same time, it's fascinating about how it plays out in the opposite direction. I thought it was funny. The Wrath of Khan is one of my favorite movies of all time. And when I watched this, I didn't think, oh, again, is nothing sacred. They should they shouldn't trot over that ground. Instead, I watched it and I was like, oh, this is so great. They are they are taking the Wrath of Khan and then they're they're spinning it and they're changing it and they're doing some different stuff with it in the context of this movie. And it's only like ten or fifteen minutes where it lines up. And it, otherwise, it's a very different movie. I'm curious what you guys all thought of that. It got me. At a, I think I got really wrapped up in the movie at this point. I was really. Inve- I guess I was invested because I had a moment where. Where, you know, they telegraph, okay, the engines, there's the glass door, right, with the radiation sign on it. And my first thought was, 
Well, but Spock's up on the bridge. They're never going to get him down here in time. Like, that's going to be super convoluted if they have to get him down here so he can fix this and die. And then I had that, like, you know, oh, wait, no, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to have Kirk go in, which I thought, huh, well, that's interesting because they had done, there was so much speculation because they had that scene, uh, that yeah, shot. They uh, it in the trailer. Right, but no, but they didn't because it was misdirection. Well, it like that's uh, what the for me that was what depending worked for on me. what mindset you were in. I would have preferred not to have seen that part of the. I was because, I was okay I, with it because it 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 got me thinking of okay, clearly there's something in here that is an homage to Star Trek Two, but it didn't. It never occurred to me, and maybe because I'm maybe I'm dumb, maybe, but it never it never occurred to me a million years that they would go in the other direction, um, and again, you know, Jason points out that the the sacrifice theme here, and obviously this is an obvious you know uh, part of that and the major part of that in this movie is kirk literally sacrificing himself to save everybody um and i was so wrapped up in it in fact that i usually am pretty good at catching plot points when they foreshadow things like but i really had a moment of huh they're really gonna kill Kirk, huh? Like, well, that'll make the next movie really interesting. If it was Joss Whedon, maybe. If this was well, a Joss Whedon movie, that's fine. Then, but then I mean, like, not to say. To be Kirk. fair, J.J. Abrams is also not a, a guy who shies away from killing major characters. Um, but I, I just, I had forgotten all about. Despite the fact, in retrospect, I look back and I'm like, there's that one scene that's really, really. It's kind of awkwardly painful with the bones. What are you doing with that? With, with Khan's blood with and that, that triple? Trip, yeah. Why do you have that dead tribble on your desk? Oh, I'm injecting him and bring him back to life. <laughs> yeah, that's that that that's the moment that I always call back to the um. It's Wayne's World where there's that line of like, "Huh, he told us his entire itinerary. It seemed extraneous at the time." <laughs> and and this is that moment where the second time I watched it, I'm like, "He's literally in this totally uh, taut scene with Khan, right?" And then he, he and it's Khan out of left him, field, and he just looks at Bones and says, "What's the deal with the tribble?" Like, yeah, it's like uh, what? Yeah. Well, this is this is how we do science uh, on the Enterprise. I just inject random things into dead triples. It's badly executed because it's it bugs me because it shows a lack of credit being given to the audience because we saw Khan well, yeah. take his blood out. Saw Mickey Smith from Doctor yeah. Who put it in his daughter's thing. His daughter gets better. We get it, right? We right. don't need to see the triple thing, right? Right. It smacks of a studio note, like, eh, people really going to know that people, you know, our audience is really going to be smart enough. If they wanted to fit the Tribbles in, because, like, everyone loves Tribbles. We got to put them in somewhere. But we saw McCoy inject the blood into the Tribble as, like, a test. We didn't need the, what are you doing with the Tribble? Well, I... That's that's what strikes me as odd about it was that it felt so blatant. It was too that much. It seemed like something that was tacked on later, right? Yeah. You know, and so you could cut that, and you would know. I mean, there are numerous plot holes. Then, like as I was talking to occasional incomparable panelist Tony Sindelar about this the other day, but he's like, I mean, you got like seventy other guys on board with blood, like right. you can't like borrow blood from them. Or... But they're all frozen. <laughs> they're frozen. Yeah, but they take a guy out of the tube to put Kirk in the yeah, tube. Yeah, but they got to thaw him, and they, and they don't have a microwave. I'm sure they would have tried that if they didn't get the con blood, but they got the con, get, get con, con was available. He's right, and they blood. also point out that they can't kill him. It's like, I'm pretty sure you can get blood out of him if he's dead. <laughs> Bones drank all the blood he had on hands. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true. It's 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 true. Um, <laughs> Turns out this con blood makes a great cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, a couple of comments uh, from some of our, our Star Trek doubters in the, in the chat room, which is, which is great, which is uh, they're saying uh, they didn't like Kirk sacrificing himself because they felt it was empty. And what I would say to that is Kirk 
thinks he's sacrificing himself. We know if we're smart that he's not. But the point is that the character is making that decision. It is it is interesting to see the ramifications of that. Also, my kids thought he was going to die. My kids were very upset at that part of the movie because <laughs> they didn't realize what was going to happen. And in the end, um, you know, I, I think that's uh, in any franchise movie with a strong protagonist they're not going to kill him i mean i'm sorry they're never going to kill him so really you know the point is that the character makes that decision not that the audience is thinking oh my god captain kirk's gonna die right now because i mean i i wondered if they'd kill chekhov maybe but it's not, I it's not like a big scaffolding fell on him <laughs> oh. well and, and it's not i mean the issue is Kirk doesn't go in thinking, it's okay if I die in there, they can just inject they me with God's blood and I'll be fine. I'll be, I'll be resurrected. <laughs> you know, you know. Speaking speaking of that, that sacrifice scene, uh, even though I saw it coming and knew how they were going to revive him, the one thing that sold it to me was like, well, two things. One, one, if you're a super Star Trek fan and it's annoying you, I try to get into that mindset by thinking well, how I would have felt if, like, Luke told Vader that he was his father. You know, like, if he just, <laughs> oh, isn't that so clever? It's a role reversal. Don't you get it, guys? But that would be nonsensical. This <laughs> makes some sense. And the thing that sold it to me is that after this played out exactly how I thought it would, and I was slightly annoyed about seeing it in the trailer, Spock yelling Khan at the end of it for whatever reason I, I didn't think that would happen and that yeah. sold it for me because you would <laughs> expect if the roles were reversed that surely Spock's reaction would be more subdued than Con. Kirk's and instead they went the other direction where I think it was more over the top than I mean maybe it's just the framing yeah. and, the, and the scoring and and that fits with the new Spock who really was sold especially in the first movie as just this tortured soul who's really trying to keep it together here and who really does feel more deeply than humans do and but can't control it like a hundred percent vulcan can uh and once he yelled that out and also i saw someone in the chat room yelling about that and saying how it was like vader's no it's so far from that 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 outburst fit with his character and sold me that sequence and i said okay now i buy it you can bring it back now i like to think of this as emo spock yeah he's very i know I, I like that it gave me it gave me a little bit of goosebump i don't know it worked for me i agree with john He's a good yeller. I thought it was a little bit silly. Well, the original con scream is a but little that's, bit silly, but too. But so. that's true. I mean, we also risk uh, mythologizing the old Star Trek and saying this new thing doesn't live up to it when nothing would necessarily live up to the to the classic. Well, I mean, the, these characters and these actors don't have the same history that the, the original characters did, right? So it's not going to have the same impact. But that's fine. I think it's clever, and it's a, a clever reworking of something that's familiar, and it was fun to see, and it made sense in the context of the movie, and uh, people just need to chill out. Yeah. Calm it down, people. Yeah. Get a life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you, you missed that one more slightly unnecessary action scene where they're jumping on top of, like, red garbage trucks in, in uh, you know, floating garbage trucks, and Spock is chasing Conda. Well, that's, that's after. Oh, is that later? Well, like, that I felt like... We don't need you to jump from uh, vehicles that we don't understand to other vehicles that we don't understand and punch each other. This scene can take place in a more compressed yeah. manner. Yeah, it was It was also the uh, unnecessarily complex thing, sort of like at the end of the first movie where, where they're jumping around on the different platforms and stuff, where it's like, really, is right. this in the future in San Francisco? Is this how we're going to deal with garbage or moving T- freight? Time was, all you needed was a soundstage and some paper mache rocks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a fight, and uh, Hora beams down, and they they stun Khan a bunch of times, and he gives him the little pinch, and and there's actually a funny, good moment I think where where Khan is trying to squeeze squeeze Spock's head 
until it pops. And Spock gives him the little like a mind meld thing, like to transfer the pain he's feeling. And, yeah. and Khan's like, "Ow, you know, yikes!" And that was really <laughs> well, nice. I did not realize that hurt so much. I will stop doing that to people. Yeah. You know, that's sorry. that's wrong. I, I apologize. Well, if if my head hurts when I squeeze your head, then I'm not going to do that. Because so then he tries to like break Spock's hand. He's like, "No, no more of this hand business, you." Um, you Stop moving your hand in my face. And, and, and exactly, <laughs> uh, and that, and and, um, and so to go to the the very end, uh, I'm also amused that uh, they just put them all back in the freezer, and I, I actually kind of like that because it's almost like it's not the same, obviously, but it's almost like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's like <laughs> oh, yeah, we're gonna totally. file them away, and I'm sure. First off, I'm sure he'll never be woken up again. No. Hmm. And also, I'm sure nobody will say, hey, where did the guy who has the blood that brings people back to life, Where it's a shame that he died, right? He died, right? He didn't die. What did we file him under? <laughs> where is he? Is magic blood? Is that where? Yeah. Is under is it, M? Blood, comma, magic. They don't really need the blood anymore, though, right? Because he synthesized, like, uh, McCoy synthesized some kind of resurrection serum. So, <laughs> Maybe. theoretically, everyone in Starfleet uh, is immortal in this now. universe is immortal. <laughs> I, awesome. I assume they will forget completely about his blood curing people and that will not be a plot point in future movies where he's revived until star trek the return of khan where then that'll be the reason he's revived right well i mean maybe they'll have a scene where they're they're having a battle on a spaceship where gravity is suspended and those drops of his blood will be floating in terrible uh, cg through the- <laughs> oh yes petrolismal <laughs> so any other uh any other thoughts about into darkness i mean it sounds like everybody liked it um i, I of course i didn't invite the people i know who didn't like it so you know, but <laughs> but I mean, generally, I mean, it get, it's got the John Syracuse seal of approval, folks. You can't argue with that. That ending sequence where, like, I felt that it was going a little bit too long. Where, like, now the ship is falling, and now the thing is going to crash into San Francisco. It had yeah. a little bit of multiple endings disease, but it was engaging enough. And especially once they yeah. start fighting on the garbage trucks, whatever they were, that that could have been tightened up a little bit. And I agree. That's why I felt like there was just so much in this movie that I, you know, I I give them thumbs up for trying to wedge the Mickey scenes in the beginning, but I would have liked them to tighten up the end a little bit as well. But don't forget the other homages that we saw floating around, including Carol Marcus, like, oh, it's good to have family, right? Nudge, nudge at the very end. Uh, And also I liked the reference to, there are references to Nurse Chapel. um, I believe it was Majel Barrett's character in the original, correct? Mm -hmm. That is correct. Uh, And uh, Section 31, which is a Deep Space Nine reference. And Harry Mudd. Right. Anybody? Yeah. Was yeah, the, right? mud, the mud incident, the mud right? Incident, yeah. Oh, yeah. that makes sense. Also, the scene at the very end where uh, they get recruited for the Avengers, I thought. Was, <laughs> <laughs> well, people Why is that not of- the end of every movie after the credits? Samuel Jackson shows up as Nick Fury and invites them to join the Avengers. The, uh, the, the chat room seems to demand that we talk about the, the Spock-to-Spock Skype session. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the complaints that, that I heard after the first movie was isn't old spock gonna sit down and write like okay here's who you need to worry about and and <laughs> so we get that scene in here where he says no no, no i'm not gonna tell you you need to have your own destiny however let that me tell you being said. just this one time just this once <laughs> here's what you which need to coincidentally do. is the only time i appear in this movie but i'm just saying just this once i yeah. would love to have seen a blooper reel where it's like no i won't tell you anything about your destiny but there's this guy con and then like oh beep like <laughs> see Spock swearing yeah, up a what? storm like son of a <laughs> and and before I go whales just yeah, just whales 
Make sure you ha keep a few on hand. They're surprisingly handy. <laughs> you guys should really take care of the whales. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, is there a planet somewhere that has whales? Because you should bring them back. If a guy shows up and tells you that he's God and wants right. your ship, say no. <laughs> say no. God does not need a starship. <laughs> also, that Cybok guy, not my brother. It's a, it's apocryphal. <laughs> Don't let him feel your pain. Yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was fine. I, I I didn't think we needed to see old Spock again. But at that point in the movie, when everything's very tense, it's actually kind of a funny. I didn't mind it. It's nice to see Leonard yeah. Nimoy again. I He's I think seeing the paycheck. sort of two Spock dynamic is actually pretty amusing. But you know, I didn't think it was necessary. But I thought that was one of those cases where people who want to uh, ask, well, what about the old Spock? He knows everything. Uh, this was an example of them trying to address one of those points i like the idea that he's having a conversation with himself on a bridge in plain view of like 20 crew members who are all have all got to be going what the hell is going on <laughs> yeah there are there two spocks where did that come what, from what what also i i just love that leonard nimoy retired has retired about 74 times now yep. and keeps coming back <laughs> he said he said read those lines from his bathroom though nobody retires like like leonard nimoy yeah that was just skype call to New Vulcan. He's he's always so Leonard Nimoy's always wearing the Spock makeup, just no matter That's where you true. call him. Yeah. When Chris Pine was talking, when Kirk was talking about, uh, or no, I guess it was Spock was talking about, oh, get the get the Vulcan home or the new new Vulcan or whatever that is on the line or whatever. I was hoping that they were going to rope in the remainder of the Vulcans into the main plot line of the story, and I was disappointed when I said, oh no, he's just calling himself, just calling Spock, just he's butt dialed himself. <laughs> well, I see and, what's going and, on, and that like. <laughs> Uh, if if that was all it's going to be there i would just be perfectly happy to have that scene and that uh, and then spock's idea of contacting the vulcans completely cut out of the movie yeah yeah it was not necessary it was nice and all but it wasn't necessary but you're right i think the ending was the was the the sloppiest part uh did anybody else want to render their final uh judgment uh i I liked it. I mean, it's it's two movies in a row where I've walked out bouncing and ready to see the next episode next week, <laughs> which I never would have thought before the first one. Um, and you know, I I'm I'm also I'm very critical when I go see stuff because I'll think, well, gee, how would I have written it? And it's it's sort of weird to me that these have been immune to my critic critical nature, uh, especially this one. Um, because again, you know, we went as the whole family and I'm, I'm sitting there with the kids. And one of my favorite memories of last summer was showing the kids Wrath of Khan for the first time. And they had no warning of it. They had no idea about Spock's death or anything. And, you know, we're watching the movie and they're enjoying it. And the, the living room is dark. And at the end of the movie, I look over and my 11-year-old is just completely in tears and I went, oh, my God, that's what it was like 30 years ago. And so watching this one, it was the same kind of thing. I was like, I wonder what, what, what how he's going to react. And they start getting into the, the you know, Kirk sacrificing himself and the, the glass and the I, we are friends and all that. And I look over and he's he's sitting there and he goes, wow, that's like Wrath of Khan. I'm <laughs> 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 like, well, Jaded look already. at you. Yep. Okay. Fine. My kids, my Fine. kids, I showed them Wrath of Khan and they don't remember it. And they're like, well, I guess we got to watch it again. <laughs> like, you know, that was like Wrath of Khan. They're like, no, which one is that? Uh, is that the one with the whales? <laughs> is that the one with God? <laughs> yeah, we did. We did watch the one with the whales. But Scott, your verdict? Uh, speaking as a uh, tried and true Star Trek fan, 
uh, I was satisfied with it. I, I mean, I've read a lot of people listing lengthy things like, you know, cold fusion wouldn't freeze a, vul- a yeah. volcano. And I'm like, well, warp doesn't work. You can't use <laughs> transporters. Um, so, you know, I cut, cut a little. It is a fictional movie. It's a lot of fun. Like I said, I think the I think that they captured the relationship, which is what the original series is really about, the relationship yeah. between Kirk and Spock and uh, McCoy. Uh, they got that right, and I think that as long as you get that right, you can you can hang a lot of stuff off of that. Yeah, it forgives a lot of other faults. Exactly. And and especially this movie, they got the right villain, so so Benedict Cumberbatch is a really good a very different but a very good con. Uh and I, I saw this movie with my, my wife and I said to her, Well who was the better con, uh, Ricardo Montalban or, or Benedict Cumberbatch? And she said, well, Benedict Cumberbatch was certainly the scarier con, mm. uh, the more like chillingly frightening con, uh, but uh, Ricardo Montalban was angrier. <laughs> and I said, yeah, right. that's, that's about right. He had a lot of reasons to be angry. Uh, he did just get shot onto a random planet by Captain Kirk. So right. I was, was waiting a... at the end of this movie for them to be like, they're not going to just thaw him out and <laughs> put him on a ruin him. <laughs> exactly. Spock probably warned him against that part of it. But also, people remember uh, Montalban from Star Trek Two. But you know, in Space Seed, he was, uh, you know, he was much younger, just like everybody was. And this is this is that original thought out con here, not the. You know, twenty years on the desert planet, and my wife got eaten by a seti eel, and the oh. crazy with revenge yeah. kind of con. reading Moby Dick over and over and over exactly. again because nobody Soon. packed a Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but overall, I mean, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I was happy. I did not. I wasn't angered by anything that happened in it, uh, and I thought I thought it was a great Star Trek movie, and I would. I, I saw it twice. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll see it again. I'll buy the Blu-ray. Yep. I want Star Trek back on TV, but uh, yeah. absolutely, I think that'll happen. I, I I think it's inevitable that it that it will happen. They may have to make another one of these movies first, and then segue into a spinoff series or something. As I said to you on, on uh, Twitter, Jason, I think it is clear that Wrath of Khan is a better movie, but this movie is fun and enjoyable. Yes. I don't know. I just watched Wrath of Khan, and maybe it's because it didn't date that well. I, mean, I I agree that Wrath of Khan is the best of the regular classic Star Trek movies. I think I have to see this one again because I did only see it one time, and it's and and with my son, so that may be clouding my judgment. But I, I don't. I would put this right up against Wrath of Khan, in in if both both of them viewed in modern times. But again, maybe I'll have to see Into Darkness one more time to to see we'll do a whole episode about the original star trek movies i would say that my four favorite star trek movies are these two and star trek 2 and and first contact actually um i i would say they're my four favorites i could go with that if you had four and six in there then you've listed every good star trek movie well, that's true <laughs> <laughs> fair, that, point. That true. fair point someone was complaining about my they, six they favorites that that when kirk dies they don't take a whole movie uh to bring him back and it's like yes they learned you see they learned not to the do search for Spock. Uh, that kirk. the search for kirk it's yeah that's spock's right. crossed out yeah, well just stuff him in a torpedo <laughs> I, I think he's shoot in the him into room. space and see what happens see what happens Shoot him at. They could have shot him at Kronos and, and seen what happens. Right? <laughs> exactly. Then the the Klingons would have resurrected him. That's where you hide your people. Is in torpedoes. That's how it works. Exactly. All right. So this has been good. Uh, I, I 
I uh, I encourage a second viewing. I think a second viewing would be good. My kids liked it too. I, I liked it better. I saw it in 3D the second time. Oh, did you see it in IMAX 3D? I, I saw the regular 3D. I don't really recommend ah, well. the 3D. I thought it was shot in 2D. I think maybe it should just stay in 2D. Yeah, I watched you, it in you 2D. need the IMAX 3D because uh, I spent uh, $20 a ticket to see it in IMAX 3D. Was it spectacular? Ah, uh, it was enjoyable. Uh, I, I I then saw it again uh, for seven dollars, and I had just as much. Yeah, fun, see, so. there you go. That's how they get you. All right, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna call it. This has been great. I'd like to thank my guests, as I always do, as is my custom. Dan Morin, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, Captain. Live long and prosper, Dan. May the force be with you, <laughs> David Lore. <laughs> thanks for coming back on. It was great to have you. Great to be here, and, and I shall leave you as you left me. Is that a threat? <laughs> John Syracuse, thank you. You know, we forgot to mention the best William Shatner homage in this entire movie, which is the title, which is without its colon, it's Star Trek into Darkness. <laughs> you don't know where to put the emphasis. You can do it anyway. I thought you were going to say the best star, uh, William Shatner homage in this movie was the TJ Hooker scene. I'm just making that. When Spock rolls over the uh, the hood of that <laughs> shuttle, <Yeah. laughs> shuttlecraft. Was I was awesome. thinking of uh, the, the scene where he fights off all the spiders. There is a William Shatner reference that you will have to Google Ooh. for later. Fair enough. And Scott McNulty, it's you and me. Uh, thank you for being on another Star Trek episode. I don't know how it is that we've been on this podcast and we do like a billion episodes about Star Wars and like three about Star Trek. How is that possible? John? Meritocracy? What? That's outrageous. I, I, I'm also deeply offended that this movie was described as a Star Wars movie. <laughs> well, save it for our Star Wars versus Star Trek yes. movie, in which we determined whether the Enterprise or a Star Destroyer would win in a fight. Wait, well, they also did say it was the best Star Wars movie of the last 20 years. So, well, That's not a it's high, not not a high bar. bar. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the good news is Star Trek to the rescue, J.J. Abrams will be... Uh, warping through hyperspace to save the Star Wars franchise <laughs> That's right. in episode 7. Set your lightsabers to stun. These movies are just a warm-up, Jason. Yes. Now that he saved Star Trek, maybe he can save Star Wars with some of that Star Trek magic. Lens flare. Alright, until our next episode, which will probably be about Star Wars, because aren't they all <sighs> at this point? Uh, for the incomparable and my fine, fine panelists, this is Jason Snell signing off. May the force be with you. What? No! <laughs> Um, in Star Trek 2 they, they fake the death of, of Spock and the rest of the crew in the Kobayashi Magoo, Maru at the beginning Kobayashi Magoo. <laughs> I wish it was the Kobayashi Magoo <laughs> it's, it's, you, you can't win because you can't see anything you can't see no like in the theater when I was taking notes that was the Kobayashi Magoo I'll tell you <laughs> See, what I should have done is, like, very cleverly replay parts of our Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan episode, but with Scott and I taking the opposite roles. Ah, uh-huh. yes. But go. I didn't do that. You still can, wow. Jason. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. This is City Alpha 5. See? There, we, we've reversed roles now. Excellent. Is this City Alpha 5? <laughs> I, just watched, I, I just watched Star Trek for The Voyage Home with my kids. Computer. <laughs> Hello, computer. Actually, my favorite line in that movie is, Doctor gave me a pill and it grew me a new kidney. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. The old lady. Whales. Yeah. Klingon, birds of prey. Sure. Remember where we parked. Exactly. 
I'm in Indiana. I just work in space. Uh, uh, it was Iowa. Come on, guys. But he's in Indiana. <laughs> I'm in Indiana. It's all out. I'll allow it. Is this heaven? All right. I'm glad. John, John allows it. That's good. Whew. Spock gives the Vulcan death grip to that guy in the bus. Everybody claps. There's no such thing as a Vulcan death grip. Dan, just just leave now. You're embarrassing yourself. Search <laughs> your feelings. You know it to be true. Uh, what? No! <laughs> That's not true! That's impossible! It, you know, you guys have done the City Alpha 5 reading so much that when I went back and watched Wrath of Khan again, uh, the, the actual reading in the movie is now less exciting or dramatic. Than all of your variants, like it's just underwhelmed it's by his actual exciting. reading. Like, oh, he just kind of says the line with a little bit of emphasis. It's nothing like the over-the-top. This is City Alpha Five. Thank you.